the Jeep Wrangler 4xe. It's electrified. So you can boogie-woogie-woogie up a mountain, over creeks, or boogie-woogie-woogie through a desert where you get bit by a pit viper. So you boogie-woogie-woogie back to camp and ask your friends if they'll suck the snake venom out. When they say no, you boogie-woogie-woogie to the nearest hospital for a dose of anti-venom and boogie-woogie-woogie your way to a full recovery. The electrified Jeep Wrangler 4xe. Learn more at jeep.com. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Hey guys, and welcome to Happy, Sad, Confused. I'm Josh Horowitz. This week on the show, a special sneak peek at War of the Planet of the Apes and a geek icon like no other Mr. Bruce Campbell. But first, joining me as always to get you guys up to speed is Sammy. Hi, Sammy. Hi, Josh. How's it going? It's going great. How about you? I notice a, a tickle in your throat. I what? notice a, 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 a something. <laughs> Something's off. This is my new, my new sexy persona. <laughs> well, I so I spent the last weekend... Uh, New York Comic Conning it up, and I can give you guys uh, as one does <laughs> as, as I do, as you would expect. Yeah. I can give you the brief rundown on that, but I want to hear about your weekend because you just came from the land where Shia LaBeouf got married. I the okay. Because you were in Vegas. I was in Vegas, and when I found out that Shia LaBeouf got married the weekend I was there. I was so mad. <laughs> I was to not have seen it or like known it was happening. Apparently, while I was he live streamed it. Yes, there was a lot of live streaming going on these past few days. There was a live stream of Shia's uh, a wedding in Vegas, and, uh, and our friend Shailene, Shailene. was uh, Facebook lived her arrest, um, protesting the Dakota Pipeline. Dakota Pipeline, Shailene. She is a warrior. She really is. We're thinking of you, Shailene. We um, are, as always. No, truly, I, she's 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 a, a unique lady, and and and. You know, props to her for standing up for a cause she truly believes in. Mm -hmm. As you do uh, in Vegas, you stood up for a cause you believe in. Partying. (laughs) I was partying. You ever see The Hangover? It was like half of that. (laughs) It was your first time in Vegas, right? Yes. And I, you know, I really, like I said, I got off the plane and I was like, this is the worst place in the world. I hate it here. And then I had like two and a half drinks and I was like, I'm never leaving Vegas. (laughs) (laughs) And you caught, what shows did you catch? Uh, You know, I happened to have caught, well, last week I talked about seeing Hamilton. Right. So everyone's going to think I'm just such a bitch because... This week I saw Celine Dion's 1,000th performance in Las Vegas. I sure did. How many times did she pound her chest when she was singing? She was bruised by the end. (laughs) She was like kneeling over and bruised. I actually watched a little Celine Dion over the weekend too. I think think she was profiled on Sunday morning either this weekend or the past weekend. And it was a very sweet, touching interview talking about her. Renee. Renee. The one man she's been with, she said. She said she never kissed another man besides Renee. She talked talked a lot about him during the show. She's Aww. animated. Well, okay. So here was my, my uh, yeah, weekend in brief. Yeah, tell us about your weekend. My Kiki weekend in brief. Um, so I did a bunch of interviews, some of which we did for the podcast, some of which you'll be hearing in the next couple of weeks that I'm very excited about. Uh, moderated a fun panel. It was uh, the Resident Evil Underworld panel. So it had a bunch of kick-ass women like Mila Jovovich mm-hmm. and Kate Beckinsale. And that crowd was insane in the best possible way. Um, and then I went for fun. I checked out the uh, Power Rain. How was that? and John Wick panel. This was like the, the Lionsgate panel. I really went for John Wick, to be frank, but the Power Ranger stuff actually <laughs> looks pretty good. See, the trailer looked pretty good. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't grow up with Power Rangers, so I have no allegiance to it, but it looks like a, a decent flick, so I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, and John Wick looks awesome. The new trailer's out there. Who doesn't love a decent flick? 
I love the flicks. <laughs> love the flicks. Uh, but uh, and then oh, I, I went to the. Um, they had a little like cocktail reception for John Wick, uh, in which uh, I chatted a little bit with Keanu. But mm. more importantly, um, I, I and I posted this photo on Instagram. They had a little VR thing for like a new John Wick experience, where you can shoot up a thousand people if you want on the rooftops of New York. Maybe it feels a little weird right now, but but hey, whatever, whatever floats your boat. Um, as long and, as Keanu's there, right? And uh, Ian McShane was there, and he donned like the you know the the visor, like the whole apparatus for the first time. Very not even warily. He was he was into it. So I have an amazing photo of him in the VR thing, uh, shooting me with his guns because uh, he didn't know what was in front of him. But maybe he did. Maybe he did I was going to say it. He the visor wasn't even working. Just <laughs> <laughs> like I hate this guy. <laughs> so that was yeah. So a lot of fun stuff at your Comic Con. I only saw like five percent of the stuff there. But um, uh, one of the other things that was there that is a big part of this week's show is War of the Planet of the Apes. And this is um, as I say in this interview that you're going to hear uh, a franchise that I really love. I mean, I love the original films, but um, what they did in in Rise, which was the James Franco movie a few years back, and then really with with Dawn, which um, was one of my favorite movies of a couple years ago. Andy Serkis, once again, as Caesar. Uh, Matt Reeves was the director, uh, who has also done things like Cloverfield and Let Me In. Um, and he, uh, both these guys are back for War of the Planet of the Apes, which opens next July. So um, I, got a, I got a really uh, fun opportunity in that um, they let me take a sneak peek at some footage, um, about 15 minutes of footage that was like some unfinished scenes. It was You got to sort of see the mocap. This is like one of those things Ooh, where like, yeah, it was really cool. cool. It was, and, and I talk about it a little bit in the conversation. But to see the performers and Andy Serkis, who's like the master of mocap, he's like the Lawrence Olivier of mocap. mocap. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And to see the dedication they have to have, because like you have to imagine, I mean, you know, acting is always putting yourself out there, but to like be in that silly suit in this like real environment and having to like pretend like you're an ape, (laughs) it's like, it's extreme. And to see it without like all the bells and whistles added on, you're like, oh God, these guys are some of the best actors out there. So um, uh, a lot of cool stuff. They also showed some, some kind of like teasery trailer stuff that's not out there yet that included the new villain which is Woody Harrelson <gasps> looks like true badassery like he's like this is not fun Woody Ar- so, Harrelson nope. but he's such a cool guy nope, nope this is not look like a cool guy to hang <laughs> out with he's like your cool stoner uncle <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the first conversation you're going to hear today is about a 20-25 minute chat uh, I had with the brain trust of um, War of the Planet of the Apes. So you're going to hear uh, Andy Circus himself, who is just amazing and needs to get some kind of awards recognition at some point for these kinds of performances. Matt Reeves, who's a director I really admire, and the producer of this trilogy, uh, Dylan Clark. Uh, so that's going to be the first conversation. Then a little later, kind of the big, chunky uh, heart-to-heart that we have on this week's show is, is, as I said, a true geek icon. It's Bruce Campbell, who... Um, you know, I grew up totally into the Evil Dead movies, and uh, to have him here uh, talking at length about Ash versus Evil Dead, which is his series returning to stars for a second season, uh, we talk uh, about a lot of stuff. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in the uh, in the break in between these two conversations. But as I said, first up, if you are an Apes fan, if you are a fan of kind of like intelligent blockbusters, I think you're really going to dig this conversation. Uh, we really dig into sort of some. Uh, some stuff that's to come in War of the Planet of the Apes without revealing too much. Don't worry, we've got months and months to go before the film, but this will give you a good taste of what's to come in the next installment of this franchise. So uh, here's my conversation with Andy Serkis, Matt Reeves, and Dylan Clark, 
Hopefully you'll be able to tell them apart. If not, just know that they're equally one-third each, the, the guys that are responsible for the uh, Apes films. Yeah, and yes. important to know that Josh did this interview while dressed in a gorilla in, costume. It, well, I was going to say in a mocap suit, but the suit, but either way works. <laughs> well, in your head, it was a, a gorilla costume. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> mocap gorilla. <laughs> please don't have that visual. Uh, enjoy this conversation, guys, and we'll see you on the other side. I'm joined by the triumvirate uh, that is uh, very much responsible for perhaps my favorite franchise going. I, I was just telling you guys, I mean, I, I, I loved what Rise did in terms of setting up this kind of new interpretation. And I, it's tough to up the ante, but you guys did it with Dawn. Dawn was such a, a beautiful piece of work. And now it's time for war, guys. Here we go. <laughs> so, to, so talk to me a little bit about, I guess, Matt, maybe start us off with, in terms of... Um, deciding to come back into this franchise right after. It's a huge undertaking, needless to say. Um, when did you know you had more story to tell? And when did you, like, how much of the story did you know before the first film, the second film was finished? Um, you know, I think we knew that we had more story right, right away, right as we were doing it. I mean, one of the exciting things for me in getting involved with the franchise was the way in which it was done, the way that Rise entered that world it was not a retelling of anything. It was an entry point into a universe that already existed, but from a perspective that you'd never seen, from the ape point of view and to identify with apes. And so we know that that 68 film and what the world becomes is way off in the distance. Right. And the question then becomes, how do we get there? And when you change the story from a question of what happens to why did it happen, how did it happen, it becomes more psychological and more character-based, which is, I think, what the franchise does so well and what, why people are surprised by it. And so we for sure knew that because... See, what was exciting for us in Dawn was it was the one moment where it could have been the planet of humans and apes. Right. And, of course, that doesn't happen. And so we knew that we were going to be ending at a place where a giant conflict was going to be entered yeah. and so we definitely knew that the story was going to be continuing from that point but what was exciting was to try and take uh, what that story was about and pull it into this next story on a, in a much grander way that focused things even more intimately on Caesar because it's not just about the war between the humans and the apes it's the war within all of the characters hearts and specifically for Caesar I mean Caesar in, in Dawn he has this conflict uh, with Koba, who is his brother, and he is forced in the end to kill him, which is devastating to him. There's a tenet, ape shall not kill ape, and he did. And if he could have known exactly what was in Koba's heart, Caesar, as we begin this film, is burdened with the idea that if he had known, that he might have been able to, present, uh, to prevent this war from happening. Yeah. So he's got tremendous guilt. And then what ends up happening and what we're doing is that the, the story pushes him even more deeply into that conflict so that if he didn't know why it was that Koba couldn't coexist, this film uh, pushes you into that with Caesar so that he is tested in a really, really powerful way. You mentioned Koba, who kind of looms so large. That performance that Toby gave was so astonishing in, in, in the second film. Um, and it sounds like that, that performance, that relationship kind of haunts Caesar, as you were just saying. And this one um, was, can you, can you elaborate on that, on that for you, maybe, Andy, in terms of that relationship and what, I mean, I would argue that like already, having just seen those, these first two films and a little bit of footage you guys just snuck me in to look at, um, that the arc of this character 
is remarkable. It's it's this has to be kind of like the role of a of a lifetime in a sense. It, it really is. I mean, it, it's been uh, well, it continues to be an extraordinary journey, and to and it is our this is this is our apehood. You know, this is this is really is. I mean, that's that's how I've kind of thought about it. Even when we were going into this third movie, it's it's uh, you know the brethren getting together to to, to make to make a, you know the, the the next stage of the evolution of this character, which is a very complex one. But yeah. sort of to pick up on the point about Cobra and the relationship of Caesar to Cobra, uh, you know, Caesar was brought up with human beings, has love for human beings, was loved by human beings, and so it's it, it's diametrically opposed, sort of philosophically, to where Cobra starts off, which is a, a, a creature that is brutalized tortured and uh you know totally oppressed so so as, as matt was saying to, to to not have that understanding um and yet to then have to to kill his brother is is a pretty huge event at the end of dawn and we, we pick our story up two years later and you know caesar caesar is in the throes of this as, as matt was saying this incredible guilt but also Guilt at, at 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 wanting at wanting his kind to survive, yeah, um, and feeling himself drift away from understanding the opposition. Just just and and as as the ape loss grows, so he finds himself unable to connect more with with his humanity and and the and the sort of the need, the necessity, and the the kind of burgeoning desire for revenge uh, finally leads him to a point where where you know it, where, where he he. He goes to an incredibly dark place. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So it's it's it has been the most phenomenal arc, um, and is and continues to be. Uh, you know, I think one of the. I, I think it's. I always knew when when I read Rise. You know, when I read the, the first script for Rise, it was just the, mo- the most beautifully nuanced, incredibly well written, and and Matt and Mark, if they, as they've gone on and, and into into Dawn and, and War, have just continued to push and push and push this. All of the kind of. Um, you know all the realms possible within the within that character to 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 reflect us to put again put us under under that under the you know examine the human condition through caesar's eyes is there at this point in the franchise a kind of like a you know whatever we're calling this uh, apes 2.0 or 3.0 or whatever like story bible in terms of like what this world is what's go is there are, are there things going on on the other side of the planet where does this go as you say we know where this is headed in a, in a broad on broad strokes kind of way um, do you kind of like when you set on the path of the third film know like not to get greedy but now I know like there you know that we could do a few more of these potentially let's we might as well know where this is going or is that is that jumping the shark a little bit is that jumping ahead too far for no, you guys I think we know you want to yeah well I think Matt touched on it we know where this franchise ends up we know that it's going to become the 1968 apes and those apes are very different from the apes that we're experiencing now um we we have been fascinated and we want to explore what Caesar has to you know grapple with and seeing him start as a revolutionary and rise to a leader in dawn trying to figure out if co- coexistence is possible to now pushing him even further into um, the depths of his soul um, the, you know, that experience of of watching this nation intelligent society that mirrors us that you know our closest animal um, cousin yeah. um, is just such a rich experience that you know you just you, you really are, are emotionally tied to these characters it's a the, it's Caesar's point of view and you're seeing this world through his po- point of view so you you I, I think you you just want to you, you care about these characters so much you want to see 
just every kind of chapter in their lives and what's going to happen in, in these movies. So I think we, we had a lot more story to tell, as Matt said, from dawn to war. Yeah. Um, and we don't get greedy. We, we really are trying to do one complete movie. Yeah. And we hope that in, in doing that and presenting that, we're offering up other characters and other themes to explore along the way because we want to know where, where this journey continues to and, go. And one question is, how much abuse can you give poor Caesar? He's been through a lot. I mean, <laughs> PTSD, there's a lot going on. This guy's haunted by a lot of things. By the, the fourth or fifth film, you're going to just be cowering in a corner. I, I'm worried about you, Andy. Well, And that, by the way, which one of the things I'm so proud of this movie is the, the suspense we feel as Caesar's grappling, whether he's going to get his humanity back or not. Is he going to follow the path that leads to Koba? Or is he going to be the leader that we, we know and love? That is so, um, it, the canvas of that is so rich. And what Matt did with Mark in the writing was he presented this very dark path, but he also presented a counterbalance with some other characters and some other right. um, things that along the, along the way that provide levity and humor and uh, emotional uplift so that while it becomes a story of revenge and, and grappling with darkness, it also has these moments of you know, uplift and, and emotional uh, high points. Well, one, of the, one of the things that's fun about the movie for us is that Caesar goes on a kind of mythic quest and what he finds though along the way to his destination is the most unlikely sort of encounters with characters who he accumulates. So here's this guy who's on this death mission and as it goes and he's trying to be as hard as he can be, he picks up sort of characters along the way who, you know, we know what Caesar is at his core. And even though we're watching him at his darkest moment and we are seeing him be Clint Eastwood-like in mm -hmm. moments, you know, in his ruthlessness, um, you also sense that he's, as he's encountering these characters that they, they can't help but start to bring out the humanity in, again, in, in him again. And one of the things that's been the case from the beginning of, of this reboot, you know, in Rise, he is the, such an incredible underdog. And you so root for him because you so empathize with him. And this process continues in a very grand way in, in, in this saga of, of war. What, what, what's necessary in succeeding someone like Koba for an antagonist uh, and someone, the, the, the character that Woody Harrelson's playing? Do you have to go in a different kind of a direction? Um, and what would you say about the guy that, that we're going to see on screen? Well, I think what's important, what, what we tried to do with Koba, see, Koba was an antagonist, but we didn't see him as a villain. Hmm. And he was a tragic character. But if you approach each of the characters with understanding, then you start to understand the psychology that drives, I mean, you know, why Koba, Koba's reaction was extreme, but you also understand it. If you had spent your existence being tortured sure. by humans, the idea that somebody could say, you know, those guys who tortured you, maybe we could live with them. And his whole beginning of his life was a horror. He was redeemed by what Caesar did. He was freed from bondage. And then it's like, well, maybe you're going back in. And he's like, I'm never going back in. And if you can't relate to that, then you really can't empathize with the point of view. And that's really what we tried to do with Woody and what he does so beautifully in his performance is that he, look at the test that humans are in. Like, he is extreme, but the world is extreme. And in humans his view, are this is the last in, shot. In, this, this is, is it. He is just trying, you know, yeah. I mean, the way we look at it is that he is willing to go to brutal lengths to create a world where maybe there won't be that kind of brutality again in the future. Yeah. So that puts him, it pits them against each other. Um, but when you understand his perspective, even though we're totally with Caesar, you don't look at his character and go, oh, well, he's just evil. Right. Because 
evil doesn't really work that way. Is it important at this point as you're like well into now this kind of new iteration to have allusions to the quote-unquote classic apes films? I mean, even, even in the small footage I saw, I don't know if it's a conscious illusion or not, but when I see a, a beach scene, I can't help but think end of the original Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Um, are there things like that that you made sure to put in this one that you can... There are. We're aware of all of that stuff because that stuff's fun. I mean, there's other, I guess, you know, like there's little details all along the way that are definite, I guess you could call them Easter eggs if you're right. real fans of the the, the, the the original films. However, one of the things, because people asked us before, oh, it's very clear you guys were trying to do conquest and then battle, and the weird thing is we weren't. Yeah. And on this one, even more so, people have said, oh, which, which one is this one like? This one is unlike any well, that we've would, ever done. I would say all of them are unlike any. I think you can make the comparisons, and we are definite fans of the original you know, franchise. We love those movies. But when we're setting out to tell these stories, it really is always about what is this character doing, what is he grappling with, and what are the themes inside of that that matter to us. Sure. Um, and sometimes they reflect back on these, these movies, again, that we cherish. Um, we are cognizant that you know, some of this imagery is going to call back, oh, wow, that feels like 68. Sure. Or, deliberately. Um, deliberately, that's, that's great. But again, if it didn't work for this story and this character, it wouldn't be in our movie. Right. We wouldn't come at it in a, um, you know, try to jerry-rig that sure, experience. Sure. It's more like trying to be in and have respect for the universe that we're in. But the stories are new stories within that universe because they're the stories of characters that are being told that you haven't seen yet. And so it connects, but it's still its own unique story. What, what struck me, and I was telling you guys before we started rolling on this, when you, you showed me some of this early footage, and, and some of the footage was, you know, it's obviously not complete. It's, it, you got to, I got to see sort of a little it's bit. It's all not complete. Let's <laughs> <laughs> just be very clear. It is a, the, we, put, we put you in the process that is this crazy filmmaking, which well, is Matt having to direct in very challenging circumstances <laughs> with Andy having to act in very challenging circumstances. Well, what I was going to say, what, and really what struck me, um, and we've all kind of talked about this, is the kind of the commitment level that the actors have to um, go through for this kind of process. But to see um, Andy, you on screen, Screen, um, you know, in your in your crazy getup that maybe isn't crazy to you at this point in your <laughs> life, um, but it's a thousand percent commitment. You can't. It's just. It's kind of astonishing to watch and to see that raw performance. Um, has anything changed about the way you approach this? You, you're you know you're acknowledged as like kind of the master of this art, but like is it? Is, is the technology changing? Is anything about this process changing for you? I, I think the main thing that's changed is the perception, actually, yeah. is that people are beginning to understand that this is, uh, this is acting and no more, no less, certainly on this side of it. You know, that, that when we get together, you know, Matt and the actors get together to shoot a scene, the, the, the process is exactly the same in terms of understanding it, breaking it down, you know, deconstructing it, uh, you know, working on the dialogue, working on the, the, the linguistic fluency of the characters or, or, or the, you know, the correspondence choreography and 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 the in in the moment beats i mean you, you treat it exactly the same as you would shoot any other form of uh, filmmaking any other live performances sure um, so i mean i think you know motion capture technology is actually an uh, you know sort of apart from this is, is in a very interesting place where it sits in, in, in the world of next generation storytelling because it will, it will absolutely, if you take, you know, where, where you see stories going to, how they're going to be told in 20, 20 or 30 years time, you know, it is this more immersive sort of form of movie making, VR, AR, all of that kind of stuff. Yep. I think motion capture will sit in right bang slap in the middle of, of all of that. But in terms of the technology now for filmmaking, it's, it's 
the the I tell you what the, the things that have changed are the understanding on the visual effects side of how to and with each iteration we were just talking about the renders and the, the skin the texturing the, the the blend shapes of all the, of, of all and the understanding of how to interpolate the actors performances that's kind of a constant constant uh, you know improvement all the time. Yeah. But in terms of, you know, we, what, what has been great, and what, what is so great about working with Matt is that he, it always feels like, with all the paraphernalia that's going around on a big film set, he always creates the time to, to make it about, about the sim, simple thing of, of which is performance. Yeah. And, and, and that is an incredibly risky, rare, and, and very dangerous thing to do with, with when you're pushed, when you're, you know, when you're at four o'clock in the morning in the middle of snow, you know, in a, in a slow, you know, blizzard, or, or, or you know, and you're in, you've, got act, you've got 12 actors in lycra body stockings, you know. Yeah, right. let's, <laughs> take, let's take half an hour to talk through the scene. Really? We're going to do that? But hey, it's necessary to get it, to that it, emotional it, place. Absolutely. And, you know. and, and in all of the actors who play the apes and of the humans for that matter you know it, it having having that level of of attention to detailed performances in this kind of movie yeah. is rare really incredible as, as i recall in, uh, dawn was not necessarily the easiest shoot i feel like it almost killed you matt as i recall uh, a little uh, easier going this time slightly at least is there uh, less pneumonia or less something well yeah so i didn't get pneumonia so Check. that was good. No, we, um, we did though. Yeah, uh, Andy got no, close though. No, no, no. But 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 hyperthermia. There was one day where I saw Karen, who plays Maurice, the the orangutan, literally shivering. Was I was like, oh my goodness! Like I thought we, we were just doing crazy things. But um, I would not say that the shoot. Here's the, the way in which it was easier was that this time I knew what to expect. Mm-hmm. The way in which it was harder was we were much more ambitious because now that I knew what to expect, we wanted to push it further, and um, and we did. From a, from a technical standpoint or kind of a bravura-like filmmaking standpoint, can you tease anything in terms of, because there are some very memorable, film from a filmmaking perspective, scenes that I think of in, in, in Dawn um, that you tried to achieve in this one? Any sequences you're particularly proud of in terms of what you went after? Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, The title's War. You have to give us war in this. So, well, for yeah. sure. We have, I mean, of course, the thing about it is, is that I think that the scale of this film is obviously much greater than any of the three. I mean, it is a war. And so you get these grand scale battles. But for me, what is exciting is that for all of the sort of canvas that the giant war is, this giant spectacle, it's the, the intimate stories that, that, that play out against that backdrop yep. that continue to be at the forefront. And so, you know, like you, I love what you said, what you said about the clip that we show with Andy and what you saw. And I was saying earlier today that I can't wait, I couldn't show it, but the clip I really wanted to show is a piece of acting by Andy that honestly I've never, it's, it's a level of commitment that is so astonishing that it blows me away to even think about it. And when people who, we can give, give the spoilers away to watch that scene, they go, oh my God. Really? Because the level of performance is just, it's just so beautiful. He's so bearing his soul. And to me, what's exciting, and I remember when uh, Dan Lemon, who is our VFX super from, from Weta, he said, wow, I think we're going to have to uh, f- invent new software to try and track that emotion wow. into Caesar. I mean, it's just incredible. So, I'd just like to add a little bit more on the, the performance part of it. It's watching Andy do this from infancy Caesar and rise to now mature Caesar in war. Um, it is all about the acting. And, you know, as the producer of this movie, watching Matt come in and embrace the process as the outsider and really get underneath it and figure it out, he, he, he always, for him being a passionate fan of apes, 
uh, he always uh, connected to the apes and, right. and wanted to be an ape. And so that when he saw Rise, he, he figured out that, wow, the technology allows you to do it. But it wasn't until he saw all of the takes that Andy did before the rendering that he understood just how far he could take this process. And it, it only gets down to great acting. We have great actors that play all these these apes, but Andy Serkis is is you know Matt and I just we sit back and it, so much is discussed about the visual effects part of this, like the photo real apes, and Weta is amazing at it. But as Joe Letary at Weta will say, it isn't possible without the performance. Sure, the performance is what gives this technology the the higher caliber thing that they have and that's Andy and so watching I mean I get kind of it is it is a put you know going through this whole this process watching it as a as now a stu- as a student but a fan and being a part of it with these guys is just it's remarkable and I've always wanted to be able to bring audiences into the process because yeah. every time we do show them they ever come visit the editing room with Matt and they see a scene that's just cut with our our actors doing the performance of apes it's mind blowing. Totally. And so, if you could just bring, at some point, I will ask Fox to put the DVD out. Yeah. Of the, you know, it's the, illuminating. Of, yes. And, it, it, and it kind of makes you appreciate it all the more. And it also yeah. shows you just how, what a master craftsman Matt is. You know, again, he's he. You asked the question about you know the shot selections. It, so much is found through the this this you know just being on the set and we were limited on on Don with our 3D cameras he he was more ambitious in this movie it's much bigger in scale um, and he had more freedom because we took away those those big cameras and he was able to do stuff that um, again no, we don't want to give it away it, it's one of those things that when you come and see the movie you will be blown away with by just what Matt's doing with the camera and, the, and working with his actors uh, and, and finally not to mention another franchise but just they're all friends of ours right Star Wars have you finished your time on episode 8 can you say anything, Andy, in terms of your duties there? Very briefly, yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 did, I did my uh, stint on it earlier this year, and uh, it's sort of, uh, well, it, yeah, I mean, it's... Was Ryan a different kind of experience? It, Ryan was great. Yeah. Ryan's a terrific, yeah, terrific director, and he had a very clear clear version of what he wanted to do with the story. It, it, yeah, that's going to be, it's going to be a great film. Uh, Matt, as a friend of Andy and JJ's, do you know how big Supreme Leader Snoke is? Is he a giant, or is he a, just a small guy overcompensating? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I can't tell that. I can't tell this way. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, gentlemen, uh, thank you for your time today. Thank you for sneaking me a, a, a little look at this footage. Um, you've got my uh, tickets, tickets, because I'll see it a few times. Um, I can't wait till next July. War of the Planet of the thank Apes, it begins. So cool, man. Good to see you It's electrified. So you can boogie woogie woogie up a mountain, over creeks, or boogie woogie woogie through a desert where you get bit by a pit viper. So you boogie woogie woogie back to camp and ask your friends if they'll suck the snake venom out. When they say no, you boogie woogie woogie to the nearest hospital for a dose of anti venom and boogie woogie woogie your way to a full recovery. The electrified Jeep Wrangler 4xE. Learn more at Jeep.com. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. That was a little War of the Planet of the Apes preview just for you guys. The film doesn't open until next July 17th. Hopefully that will keep you, you know, excited and ready. A little taste. There's a a lot to come. Uh, And there's a lot to come on this week's episode. As I said earlier in the show, uh, this week we've got a charming rapscallion 
of a Ooh. guy. Oh, you like that word, Sammy? That was impressive. <laughs> well, he is a rapscallion. Yeah, I don't know what I've that means. Yeah, but I've literally never heard one person really? <laughs> say that in my life. Yeah. Um, Thank he, you for that. <laughs> he is Bruce Campbell, and his name is synonymous with uh, horror and sci-fi, thanks to pr- predominantly his role, of course, as Ash in the Evil Dead trilogy, and now the Evil Dead show, which is called Ash versus Evil Dead, and it is on Stars. And we talk uh, a ton about um, how Evil Dead even got started, his career in depth, uh, and especially his association with Ash and his, uh, I was going to say love-hate relationship. It's really not. It's all love. He seems to really embrace this character, and it's thrilled that he's getting to do it 30-plus years in. Uh, he's a very funny guy, a lot of funny anecdotes in this. We talk a little bit about Briscoe County, a TV show that I really loved growing up, and uh, a little bit about why Sam Raimi uh, just loves to abuse him uh, like no other man. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with, uh, yes, I will call him a rapscallion, Sammy. <laughs> with the rapscallion himself. Bruce Campbell! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Bruce Campbell has entered the building. How are you, sir? Good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here today. Um, I'm a big fan of yours, big fan of this show. As I was just telling you, uh, the man, the myth, the legend that is Mr. Sam Raimi visited us on the uh, right before the show launched last year, and I'm I'm still with you guys. It's good. It's good stuff, and I've seen a few episodes from this season. Good. So um, you're talking a lot of uh, you're talking talking a lot of Ash. You've talked a lot of Ash over the last couple decades. You ever get tired of it? Is this character... I don't get tired of Ash. I get tired of talking about Ash. <laughs> oh, no. No, well, look. I mean, it, it makes sense. Playing Ash, I'll do all day. Yeah. You know, if I'm best known as Ash, then I'm going to ride him into the dirt. Let's <laughs> do it. You want Ash? You got him. Because <laughs> now we have a format where people can finally get it yeah. and get the amount of Ash that they were looking for, which is never ending. Uh, but talking about Ash is is... It's only as interesting as the questions at the end of the day. Right. Oh, it's all the pressure's on me now. Well, no, no what it is, the fun is coming up with different answers for the same <laughs> questions. Because, yeah, I mean, in the course of, of these years, I'm, I would imagine I'm not going to come up with maybe anything new. You've probably heard every single but thing. But the good news is now, as a TV show, Ash is doing a lot more. There's yeah. a lot more uh, character insight. We're seeing his hometown. You're seeing his father this year, his old girlfriend, old, old pal of his. So... We will see new sides of Ash, and I never get tired of that. Right. Uh, somebody said, are you tired of playing Ash? I'm like, no, it's just starting, because TV, you're just starting to realize what the the extent of this character. Sure. And it's more than your blowhardness. You have to. With a movie, you can get rid of a, you can, you can get away with a guy being a jerk for 90 minutes or whatever, but a right. TV show, you got to drag him along, and, and you you have to have them root for the hero. Even if he's a jerk. Is there is there anything weird about the fact that in the last year, I would imagine you've played this character more than you did in the previous 30? This is what we tell uh, fans, that if you, want, if you want the material, you'll go to TV. Yeah. And that was part of our pitch to Sam Raimi of, like, if you put all our eggs in one basket again, make another Evil Dead movie. Because Sam made the last Evil Dead movie in 1991. That's when we filmed Army of Darkness. It came out a couple of years later, but... Sam hadn't started making expensive movies yet. Right. It all started after that. You know, Spider-Man and Oz the Great and Powerful. <laughs> These are not cheap movies, none no. of them. And it, it took Sam to a, a new level. And truth of the fact is, do you really want a $200 million Evil Dead movie? It would kind of defeat the entire purpose. Right. 
And the funny thing is, if you put that much money into it, there would be questions about Ash's character. Should he say that to that little kid? Right, right, right. Should he really do that? Should he punch that old guy in the face? The answer is hell yes, but... <laughs> You're cheap enough that you can get away we, with anything, yeah, basically. we can do it, because, you know, that's the downside of these $100 million movies. Right. Is now you have to please everybody. It has to be PG or PG-13. You know, it's amazing. The producers know. If you take a movie and it used to be R, if you go PG-13, you can make another $20 million Right. Just because you're reaching a bigger audience. So the trick was, how do we bring this story back in a format that is satisfying and that we can give people what they want? And it, it's a very narrow bandwidth. We got interest in doing this as a TV show from, I'd say, half a dozen legitimate suitors. Yeah. And one of our key questions was, what are your content restrictions? Because we got buckets of blood, then we're, we're willing to use them. Well, yeah, I mean, know how to use them. <laughs> yeah. So are you going to let us use them? And the other factor, too, honestly, was, uh, you know, Sam Raimi gets final cut as a director. Sure. There's only about a dozen guys who have that, men and women. And uh, we asked one network, and the head of the network leaned back in his chair, and he goes, you know, Sam, we're really good at what we do here. Oh, God. <laughs> And I was like, oh, my God, that was his answer. That was his answer. Central casting evil studio head. <laughs> I just left out the laugh. Right. But so that's what we were looking for was the best home. Yeah. And Rob Tappert, our other partner, had just finished working with stars on Spartacus, which is a very unrestricted show. Sure. His penis is on parade. <laughs> you better watch out. Your penis might come out soon. Yeah, that's right. A cameraman was telling me the first day he filmed in a sauna sequence, he made the mistake of putting <laughs> the camera about three feet off the ground. And as every guy exited the sauna, his penis led the way. <laughs> He's like, I got to get on another show. <laughs> but it just it lets you know that they're, they're not concerned. Yeah. Uh, if it's a premium cable... You're there because you want to be, and you're going to see what they show you. And I have to say, it's not like we're trying to take advantage of it to to go, oh, we're just going to give you blood and boobies and swear words. That's not the idea. Right. The idea is if we come up with a crazy sequence, like in episode two of this season, Ash fighting a possessed colon, <laughs> you can do it. Yeah. Without going, ah, uh, should we run that up the flagpole and say your salutes and make sure it's okay with the censors and run that by somebody we don't have to check with anybody. So for, for like 25 years, you'd been asked by many people like me yeah. about the return. What are you going to do another evil day? <laughs> right? So uh, that, that begs a few questions I have. Yeah. One is when you finally got on set, at, or when, rather, I'm not going to ask like the, like, you know, was it hard to get back into character? I'm more interested, did you have any doubt that the audience would follow you there? I mean, you'd heard it from so many sure people. We did. You still sure. had doubt. I'm 58 years old. What the hell? People want to watch an old-ass actor running around banging his banging his head on stuff. Yeah, we didn't know. But the funny thing is it actually works with the character Ash. Yeah. He was never qualified 25 years ago. Now he's completely unqualified. Right. Now, but see, as an actor, though, I want to see that. I want to play that guy now. You play some strapping, handsome guy when you're 35 years old. Big deal. Right. You can take on the Deadites. Give me some geezer who wears a man girdle and has dentures and dyes his hair and, you know, now I'm there. Now, now I got something to work with. Right. Because it's all bravado at this point. Well, I was going to That's say, all he's got. 
Well, and 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 you know the muscle tone is going right. Well, I mean, I, I think, and I would say that like back in the day, and part of what I enjoy about the character when I think about it, and I would put him on that same shelf with someone like uh, like Kurt Russell and, and Jack Burton in Big Trouble was that kind of like that false kind of bravado, that bravado that really didn't have enough because backup. Ash doesn't have any skills. He has no military training. Yep. He's not CIA, FBI, which I think is fantastic. It's too easy. It, it's the writer's lazy um, format where they go, okay, a tough, grizzled ex-cop is stuck in the air vents in the movie called Die Hard. <laughs> He's got to be a cop. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a cop-out. Yeah. I, I pitched that to a, a Hollywood writer who wrote one of the Indiana Jones movie. And one of the uh, Lethal Weapon movies, mm-hmm. very just a high-end Hollywood writer. And I said, you know, Jeffrey Bohm is his name. Um, did a Briscoe with you? As he well. did. Yeah. He did. Great writer. Yeah. And I said, Jeffrey, that movie would have been a lot more interesting to me if the guy was an accountant who, in all the melee, it's just a random accountant got up in there, and he's in his suit, and he's never fired a gun. He doesn't own a gun. Um, and he, Jeffrey gave me this weird look. He goes, then how would he win? I said, that's for you yeah, writers exactly. to figure out. <laughs> Sorry, man. Maybe, it's not all easy. Maybe he's smart. Right. Maybe he goes, how do I find a gun? How do I, now that I have a gun, how do I use a gun? Is the safety on or off? I don't know. As an audience member, I, now I'm terrified. Yeah. Will he succeed? And you're rooting for the guy. If he's a cop, oh, give me a break. It's so easy. <laughs> and then if, if he failed, he'd be a lousy cop. <laughs> what kind of a cop are you? So when you're on, on set, because you obviously have not only metaphorical ownership over it, you were. You were obviously a producer. You you co-created this character yeah, with Sa- yeah. Sam and Rob. Um, so on set, do you ever, uh, or in the in the ru- writer room or anything, do you ever say something like, Ash would never say that? Do you, do you kind of like play that card? No, I just say what Ash would say. You swap it out for. A we don't more. have to make phone calls. Yeah, we don't do that. And I look; it's a friendly challenge with the writers, and I say this to them: you write, you give me good words to say that no other character can say. Because writers do this a lot; they'll write a scene, and you can swap out any dialogue with any actor. Right. That means you're not doing your job. Theoretically, no actor should be able to swap his dialogue with any other actor because it's so perfectly tailored to them, and only that character would say those words in that order. That's actually a really good exercise for a writer looking at the page. Stare at your script page, and if you can swap all the characters' names, go back to the drawing board. You flunked my class. (laughs) And so, you know, again, in a friendly way, you say, if you give me those words, I'll say them word for word, and I have very often done my scenes word for word. Sure. And I said, and if you don't, and if you phone it in, don't be surprised at what you see in the dailies. Just don't be surprised. Yeah. Because I have to do what I have to do. I'm the final arbiter of what comes out of his mouth. And you're the one that gets the blame and the credit. Well, we, sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, And look, I've no writers I have a a lot of respect for, but look, I've been doing this a lot longer than they have uh, playing this character. And especially now we get up to speed you really get a sense of it. Um, and I think the writers will eventually come around to how Ash speaks. It, actors start speaking like writers write, and by the end, the writers write how the actor talks. Sure. They find out what you're good at and what you're bad at, and they, they hopefully tailor that. What's the, um, what's the 
stage direction, the stunt in the script that that gives you the heebie-jeebies. When you read that, you say, "Oh Jesus, uh, how am I gonna? Why do I no. have to do this?" Beat. Meaning, meaning when it says beat, beaten down it, or as no, a, in, oh, oh, in, a beat. I in got between it. Yeah, yeah, lines. Beat. Oh, you hate that. They're telling the actor to take a beat. God, in terms of delivering, I'm the like, line. oh, now you're telling me how to deliver my line. <laughs> Dramatic pause here. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, well, how can we not do that? <laughs> it's just so I'm so belligerent, but don't don't tell me the rhythms. Yeah, and uh, from a, from a stunt perspective, what's the if there's like a, a oh the one uh, this year of you know you fight a possessed colon, and you said that's going to be an interesting day uh, at the that's office. Gonna, that's going to suck, and it did. <laughs> But what sucks for an actor doesn't suck for an audience. I was going to say, I've seen that episode, and it's great. No, you can't. You have to let all that roll off. Because if you go, if it's all about my personal comfort, I shouldn't be doing this show. Right. It's, uh, the Evil Dead movies have never been about personal comfort. So in this case, you have to grin and bear sequences like that, hoping that they will mention stuff like that in the reviews, which they've been doing. Yes. And then you go... Okay, I'm it was glad we it. did yeah. that scene. You've also yeah. uh, done some excellent casting this year. We should say Brit's uh, an actor out of my childhood, Lee Majors. Who I've Everybody's not s- childhood. <laughs> I'm not Lee seen him in a while. Lee goes back so far. He's, he's <laughs> your grandmother's childhood. <laughs> he's still got it, though. He's still got the presence. He's, oh, Lee's awesome. He, um, Yeah, he's got that thing. He's still got it. Yeah. And he, as he explained, I got one more show in me. I, I got one more. <laughs> like, he wants to star in one more show. Amazing. The guy's already been in three shows that went over 100 episodes. Now, to an average actor, like the show I was on, Burn Notice, it went 111 episodes. I'll probably, for the rest of my professional life, never work on another show that goes 100 episodes. Sure. Only because of the likelihood of it not happening. Yeah. Lee's done that three times. And it's a, I would imagine it's a short list of people that you can think oh, of that yeah. can play Ash's dad. Uh, it was very short. <laughs> I think there was one name on it, and it was Lee Majors. It was like, look... Let's don't make us look. Ask Lee if he's available and get Lee. Yeah, and then we'll worry about it. If Lee says no, we'll worry about it. We you, you and you lured him out to you shoot this still in New Zealand, correct? Yeah, which is which is an interesting like uh, lifestyle. Tr- I mean, it's like, that's your life. I mean, you're spending a yeah. good portion of your life out well, there. Well, it hit me this season. I was walking around Auckland, and I looked around and I went, "It no longer feels weird being here," which felt weird. <laughs> right, exactly. That's what made it weird. I've been there. It's my fourth TV show now down there. That's right. And people wonder, why New Zealand? Um, They've had a crew base that has been slowly training since Hercules and Xena and the piano Yep. and uh, Avatar, Lord of the Rings, King Kong. These are not insignificant shows either. These are are difficult shows to do. Um, The stunt teams in New Zealand are oddly some of the best in the world and we have them. My stunt guy, Raisho Vezelev, <laughs> from Bulgaria, from Sofia, Bulgaria. His favorite uh, comment is, fuck this shit. <laughs> and if he sees me, he'll go, fuck this shit, boss. Because <laughs> he'll add boss, which is nice. With respect. That's good. Yeah, because I know that they've just pulled him across the room. <laughs> and every time I see him limping across the set, Raisho, how you doing? <laughs> fuck this shit, boss. <laughs> But I know that means he's, and he says to me, he goes, boss, all we need are seven more years, seven more seasons and I can retire. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm like, Ratio, if we go seven more years, I'm in a wheelchair. Yeah. And your head's going to be on a- That's uh, okay, boss. <laughs> I will double you in a wheelchair. Anywhere you want to go, boss. 
that's an important relationship for an actor, especially in the kind of stuff you've done to, to get along with your It's stunt. more important than you realize. And I, I say that with a smile on my face, but it, it, I'm dead serious. Because you find a stunt guy, very often you can find a guy who has a physical type. He's your size, your height, whatever, good-looking guy. But he moves like a turd. <laughs> you know, and there are some it's a guys statue. Who, they're a statue yeah. waiting to go. They don't have any uh, smoothness or movement to them. It's all very stiff because they're just waiting to do the gag. Just jump out of the way of the car. They're not doing anything before, or during. It's just that part. Right. But the Rice Show, you know, uh, we shot a sequence of uh, Ash has issues with his own car, the Delta, this season that becomes something of an adversarial relationship. It's a weird sequence. <laughs> and they said, let's shoot the wide shot first in this arena. And let's just throw Raisho in there, and he'll show you the shape of it. Sure. Of this whole big sequence. And this guy from a wide shot, he just looked like a ballerina, just rolling out of the way. And when he'd get up, he'd pounce on his feet, and he would change his position and get ready to attack again. He was moving the entire time. <laughs> and very smoothly, and I went, I, that's better than I would have done it. And that's exactly what you want. You go, wow, that Campbell, he sure is nimble. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a well-known fact that going back uh, decades now, Sam Raimi loves to uh, abuse you. Yeah, that hasn't changed. <laughs> Where did that start? Uh, doing uh, magic shows for bar mitzvahs. Is that right? Mm -hmm. In high school. <laughs> Sam would get invited to be a magician because that's what Sam's early stuff was, a magician. Mm -hmm. And you, th you think about it, it makes perfect sense, sleight of hand. Yeah. And what are movies? The ultimate sleight of hand. Absolutely. I was his assistant, hung low, and I uh, wore a lab coat. And every time I would say something, uh, Sam would hit me with like a riding crop. And the kids thought that was funny. <laughs> and I think Sam, in his mind, a little light bulb went off and he went, pain is funny. Pain is funny. Well, I go to answer a. We were in radio speech together. Mm -hmm. That's how we first sort of spent time together. Because I dropped typing class in high school, and I said, "Give me something fun, radio speech." I'm like, "Yeah, let's do it." So I would go to answer a question that the teacher, you know, had posed a question. I raise my hand, chooses me. I start to answer, and I feel a number two pencil in the back of my neck, at the base of my neck, because Sam's sitting directly behind me. The teacher can't see it. Sam's well aware of the <laughs> dynamics involved here. Again, knows his angles. He knows his... Uh, oh, he knows. He visually, <laughs> he's right there because he knows that his sleight of hand is not being seen by the director, by the, the teacher. Yeah. And during the course of my answer, he would slowly increase the pressure because he wanted to see if, who would crack first, me. And I'm like, I'm not cracking first. He's going to break that tip off in the back of my neck. So it was that sort of rivalry. We'll take a look and at the uh, scars at later. Yeah, yeah. I turn around and just incredibly afterward, like, what, what the hell was that? <laughs> and he would just say, completely matter-of-factly, I tried to help you, pal. <laughs> That's his view of the world. I tried to help you. Sounds, and dynamic has not changed necessarily. The implements are different. No, he's, the good news is he's getting older like me, so he can't move as fast. The force isn't as great yeah, on the... No, yeah. he shakes a little bit. You know, it's... <laughs> It's not as uh, formidable as it was. <laughs> Who was the first person that, that told you or put the, put the bug in your ear that, like, you might have a shot at this professionally? Or was it, like, how long was it a pipe dream? And how long, uh, when did you get a glimmer of, like, this could be a real thing? Last week. <laughs> well, actors, you're, softball, always, you're yeah. always trying to be um, relevant. You know, at first you'll do anything. So 
Um, I just wanted to work. That's all it was. If I was working, then that's all you. That's all I wanted. Yeah. Anything beyond that was just a pipe dream of bogus awards or fame or fortune. That was all a crock. It was that the biggest scam of all is if you can work as an actor, because then I've just I've I've danced around the system. Right. Because um, I saw my dad in a play when I was about eight, and that's what did it. It's always those early stories, those early indelible experiences. Because he was not acting like my father. And he that's shocking a, to a, a kid. That's a, a like, kid of eight. It's like, why is my dad having so much fun dancing with women that are not my mother? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> so I, that? The context could have been much worse. That world was very became very curious to me yeah. for that reason. And then in this theater group in suburban Detroit, once you got to be 18, you could join. So I did a bunch of summer plays because they would use kids in the summer plays. They'd do South Pacific or... Fiorello, some big splashy musical. Yeah. But then when I got 18, I could be in the shows. You could actually audition to be in the real shows. And I got directed by my father. Amazing. Because who wound up being a guy who was, my dad was an, he was a madman. He was a Detroit madman for 30 years. But it wasn't that creatively satisfying. So he got into theater as a diversion. Yeah. So he directed a bunch of those plays. And it was nice to then be directed by my father, who I saw the professional side of my dad. Yeah. Where as opposed to, you know, go rake the leaves or whatever, this is more like cross down stage left, sit here, stand up here. Well, why? Well, because, you know, this and that. And it would be professional discussions that were nothing like father and son discussions. And, and what did he make of, uh, like, the first time he saw Evil Dead? What did he What did he think? He was fine. My mother's the one that she, she, she got sick. Cause, and it wasn't because it was gross. It was because her baby boy was getting hurt so bad. Yeah. She called me up one time after an adventure of Briscoe County Jr. It was a Western I did years ago, 20 years ago on Fox. She calls me up. She goes, Bruce, you've got to stop letting them force you to do these dangerous stunts. I went, let's break that down, Mom. What, what are you talking about? When you picked up that girl and you rode in front of that saloon and it, the, the windows blew out just as you went riding past? <laughs> what if you dropped that little girl? I said, Mom, it wasn't me. It was the stunt guy. What if the stunt guy had dropped the little girl? <laughs> I said, it was not a little girl. It's a man, and it's a little person, and he's an African-American who owns a bar in Van Nuys, California. <laughs> and she just got more and more confused each, each time I, I tell her. I was trying to explain. And so then I finally said, Mom. And she goes, none of that matters. What if the stunt guy had dropped the stunt guy? I said, then the effects guy with his finger on the button... If the horse didn't get to a certain spot, he wasn't going to blow it. <laughs> this is all planned, Mom. Believe it or not. She's like, oh, okay. She was just too exhausting. I'm to, just worried it took like that's 15, 20 years into your career by this time, still, or maybe 10 or 15. I least. had to tell, well, she couldn't watch stuff after a while. There were, I'd have to very selectively tell her, Mom, let that one go. Right. <laughs> you don't need that one, Mom. Little Bowie's going to get hurt. So scale of, of one to ten, like how did you know what the hell you were doing on Evil Dead? How we were doing? Like the uh, first what, what you were doing, meaning like you you from an acting perspective. Like, oh no no, that's how earn while you learn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we didn't. How do you be? How how do you star in a movie? <laughs> There's no book for that. Well, no. And what are you going after a persona? Right. Uh, are you trying to dive into a character? But we didn't know. We never had any character discussions. We weren't that sophisticated. Um, we were in, inexperienced actors saying really crappy dialogue. <laughs> and that can come across as campy humor. Right. 
even though we doggone it, we were trying to do it straight. So then, th- th- but you have lines like this: "We can't bury Shelley. She's a friend of ours." <laughs> well, what? She's dead. You know what I mean? So, you know, uh, that's the sort of thing you had. But by the end of the movie, we started. We shot sort of an order. So in a way, as you our, can see the progression of your skill, ab- yeah. absolutely. Yeah. You, well, you settle down. You you're, you forget the fact that there's a camera shoved in your face, because at first, look, it's hard to be unaware of that yeah. one-eyed monster. You know, this thing wants you to look at it, mm-hmm. and you have to ignore it. And so, it's just learning all those tricks. And any movie I do these days, I, I usually want to throw out the first couple of weeks of shooting because you're trying to figure it out. That's what's great about a TV show. If you can figure it out in the first season, and I think we we got pretty close, you're good. Yeah. And now we all know we got the job. We're much more relaxed. There are expectations now, of course, whereas before they go, oh, I hope this is good. <laughs> now they go, this better be as good as last season. Right, right. And so that's what you fight against, but it's all part of the process. And, and were you were you guys... Like, what was the attitude once it started to screen the uh, the first Evil Dead in terms of the reception? Stephen King giving this amazing quote, and like, were, were your minds blown? Were you shocked we were 50, beyond belief? 50, though, because half of the first reviews were really bad. Yeah, uh, Atlanta had one of the best ones. Uh, Sam Raimi took every bad idea he had and put it into a low budget blender. <laughs> uh, another uh, newspaper was uh, the headline was "Films That Stoop." And I'm like, this can't be good. <laughs> but then, then on the other side, this is what's so weird about reviews, and this is why you can't live or die by good or bad ones. Um, then Kevin Thomas, Los Angeles Times, Evil Dead is an instant classic. Uh, Stephen King, which gave us the great force field of protection, right. was most ferociously original horror film of the year. <laughs> and we're like... Can we use that? And we we tracked it's on him the down poster, right? Yeah. Of like Mr. <laughs> King, and this is '83. Stephen King was, you know, Stephen King. Yes. He they were making his movies left and right. So to get that, a lot of reviewers took a second look, and that helped a lot. Because it's funny, it's it's um, you can prey on people's ignorance. We know this from politics. <laughs> that if you tell somebody it's an instant classic, they're going to go in. Wanting to see an instant classic. Right. If you tell them it's a piece of crap made by some idiot and put it into a low-budget blender, <laughs> that's all you're going to be looking for. <laughs> so it is funny how they do color people's judgment. Yeah. You know. So um, – and where where were you at in terms of the, 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 the roles, the many roles that came in the wake of the all, all the Evil Dead films? I mean, did you feel like, quote-unquote, Hollywood knew what to do with you? Did you feel like you were – you knew what to do with yourself. You knew what path to go I knew go what to on. do with myself, but I, the whole Hollywood thing has always been uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know anybody in Hollywood. I don't. I really don't. Yeah. I live in Oregon. You know, my neighbors are ranchers and loggers, and, you know, the guy, my neighbor, the first day I moved in, comes up in his beat-up LTD. Guy across the street, he's a rancher. Hey, I understand you used to play a cowboy on a TV show. I'm like, yes, sir. Why don't you get your ass on a horse and help me run 100 head of cattle up the road this Saturday? (laughs) I'm like, you're actually serious, aren't you? He goes, yep, serious as a heart attack. (laughs) I go, you got an extra horse? Yep. So I wore the loudest Hawaiian shirt I could find and a big straw hat. We herded those cattle. (laughs) 
It seems like Briscoe County comes a lot. It comes out a lot. I, I have a great fondness for it. I mean, many people well, do. Well, that was the most officially heroic character I've ever played, where right. he did not have bad habits. He did give little Billy his medicine. Right. You know, he kissed women appropriately, and there was no <laughs> groping involved, as opposed to Ash. But the funny thing is, and that was a great character to play because you, you actually had to summon the best parts of yourself. Mm-hmm. You had to hide all the sleazy parts of yourself <laughs> and try and you a know, true acting stretch. Yeah, for Bruce. <laughs> you had to show you know show a little light on the good stuff. But the the character Ash for me, you know, this season he smokes angel dust. <laughs> you know, it, this is not a character we're we're we don't play any of those games. Yeah, um, which is so delightful. There's no note of. Uh, can we shoot an alternate right. to that? We don't have all. Yeah, you don't do like a – there's no PG version no. that's going to be on the airlines no. at some point. No. We don't shoot any alternate. I have to go in uh, – when I go in to do uh, the voice work, like replacing dialogue and stuff, uh, the words I have to replace are not for the American market. They're for other countries that I have to get rid of the boo-boo words. So we're coming up with creative swearing when we go to do that. <laughs> What's the most creative swear that you've had to? Um, Dana DiLorenzo had a good one. She goes, what the Fraggle Rock is that? <laughs> <laughs> and I use uh, sort of older phrases. Like I'll say, we're going to get to the bottom of this horse pucky once and for all. <laughs> like a guy from Kentucky would say that. I always liked horse I, pucky. I always remember seeing the like Lethal Weapon films sanitized for TV. And instead of a, let's get those fuckers, it was let's get those funsters. Funsters, uh, freaking, you broke my freaking lip. It's freaking every way. Farkin. I don't know. There's now I just put in a word because I don't care if it matches because it's not for the U.S. Right. I'll go, um, you know, get get your pie hole out of here or whatever. It doesn't, I don't even, if it's a D word, I don't care to match. It doesn't matter. Um I want to bring up the the, the Cone brothers just because the, you guys go way back with them yeah. as well. What yeah. uh, what was the initial relationship with Joel and Ethan? Uh, Joel was the assistant editor of Evil Dead. Crazy. So he got my coffee, and you know our first words to Joel were, uh, "I need more cream in this, <laughs> buddy." Uh, but we knew that he was interested in filmmaking, and Sam gave him a sequence to edit. It was the um, a sequence in the original Evil Dead of Ash chaining up his girlfriend. Uh, on a table out in the workshed, and there were a bunch of these little tiny micro edits. And yeah. he really, it's so Sam was like, Joel, why don't you just just cut that? You try it because they they started talking about filmmaking, um, and then Joel's brother Ethan, I believe, was a statistical analyst for Macy's, like he like an analyst, because <laughs> these guys are both you know very brainiac type guys. And so that's how we met them, and they said, uh, we want to make a feature. How did you guys get the money for this? Right. And we went, well, we shot a Super 8 movie, and we showed that to investors because we had done a bunch of Super 8 movies in high school, you know, that small, small format, that amateur projector where it gets caught in the projector all right. the time. And they took that. They went, okay, that's one way to do it. We want to shoot it like it's already been done. We want to shoot it in 35 35 millimeter, and we'll do it all silently. We'll put all the sound in later because they wanted it to look like the movie was done and they wanted it to look like a movie, not a little Super 8 amateur thing where you had to go, oh, I guess it'll look better than this. Right. And it's hard to imagine. Uh, so I played the part that Dan Hedaya played in the movie of the guy who you can't kill him, keep hitting him with a shovel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we shot it in New Jersey. On some frigid night. So this is like a test run for Blood Simple, yeah, basically? Yeah, it's like a trailer. A, amazing. They, they shot a trailer, and it's probably 
probably Googleable, like the <laughs> initial original trailer yeah. to um, Blood Simple. And um, it looked great. And because Joel was an editor by that point, you know, it looked slick, it was sharp, and it was the tagline of, you know, in Texas, you get what you pay for. <laughs> and it was just very compelling. Yeah. And here's what here's the difference. They could say to an investor, meet me at the local Cineplex, and we'll show it to you. They could show it in a freaking theater. So those guys took our lame idea <laughs> and improved on it. Yeah. They, they really did. Look, a three-minute slick trailer, they go, yeah, okay, yeah, it's going to look like that. Yeah, cool. How, how does it manifest when Sam or, or Joel and Ethan give you a ring now? Is it just sort of like, hey, we got something for you. Can you show up? Or is it like more involved converse, conversations? It sometimes doesn't happen at all. <laughs> it happens most of the time. Yeah, yeah. No, I've been in some Coen Brothers movies, but it'll be more like, um, well, um, the part in the Hudsucker Proxy. Love that one. Well, I got that because I just, I said no. They kept, <laughs> I had auditioned for another one of their movies. And, um, How dare they make you audition? Uh, look, these are the Cone Brothers. <laughs> they want, and look, some directors are like this. Yeah. They go, even though they I need know to see you, you in the part, they need I to, gotta see you. Yeah. You gotta show me that you're that guy. So I had auditioned for, I don't know, not necessarily Barton Fink, but it was one of those mm -hmm. couple of line thing. Didn't get it. I went, okay. And then uh, Hudsucker came up, and they were like, "Hey, can you come in and read for this?" And I went. No. <laughs> Let me try a different tack here. Well, and that is the most powerful wor word yeah. in the industry is no. And it's the only power that you have is saying no. And I was completely ready to have it go because I respect that. They don't want to cast me unknown. I'm working with Jennifer Jason Lee, very accomplished actress. Yeah. What if I'm a, a dope and couldn't do the role? <laughs> So they they relented and it worked out fine. You do you, know. do you do you at this point have like uh, one or two like audition nightmares in your in your in your brain that you keep coming back to? Thankfully, I have to say, um, I've auditioned for only I've only gotten about three roles in thirty seven years from auditioning. Wow. The other ways have been making a movie myself, sure. producing it, putting myself in it. Because I hated the process so much, anything to get around that end game. Yeah. Because what happens is most casting directors are ex-actors, let's just say it. And, you know, these are the former beauty queens who now are chain-smoking cigarettes, and they're bitter and jaded, <laughs> and they're reading across from you saying, oh, I love you, I really love you. And you're like, okay. And the only power that casting person has is to block you from going forward. Right. They can send you forward, but that doesn't guarantee you a role. They cannot guarantee you a role, no matter what they say, no matter how Ultimately, wide they... they have to go back to the director. The and, director yeah. or producer or somebody else yeah. will make that decision, not them. Their job is to put a bunch of monkeys in the room and see which is the best monkey for the job. Right. That's their job. I felt that was a ripoff process because I know that I'm better than auditions. And there's a lot of actors who don't like auditions. The worst meeting I ever had was with Ed Zwick, Mr. Famous Producer sure. Pants. Yeah. I had what's called a general meeting. I'm always curious about these. They are mostly worth, worth, worthless, <laughs> and Ed Zwick will attest to this one. <laughs> so it was about 30-something. Yep. So he's, he's going to produce this show, but he's mixing a movie currently. Mm -hmm. And if you want to have a meeting with him, you go to the soundstage. 
And they most sound stages now in Hollywood have a little room off to the side that's a quiet room. And you can have make phone calls. Producers are always in that room. You can never get them out. So I meet him over in that room. I'm a big fan of sound. The Evil Dead movies, Sam and I were making sound effects ourselves and cutting the foley and doing our own. We, we did it all ourselves. Yeah. We're really into it. So I came walking in, and I had to wait for him. For He was mixing his movie. And I'm there for 15 minutes watching him mix it, go back and forth and back and forth over a sequence. And I came in, and I went, um, Mr. Zwick, uh, your cricket foley is a little low at uh, 312 feet. And there was just this <laughs> dead silence, like dead silence. And other directors would have gone, ha, 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 yeah, yeah, I got to really work on that. Okay, guys, yeah, bring the cricket foley up. Um, and so that sort of killed it right from the start. <laughs> Didn't go over. And he attempted to make small talk, and I attempted to make small talk. And it was, we killed about 15 minutes not talking about his project. And we finally got around to it. And I said, look, I don't want to waste your time. It seems like a cool project. I'd love to be a part of it. And I left. By the time I got in the parking lot, <laughs> my phone was ringing from my then manager going, um, uh, what was that? What was that? And apparently Ed Zwick, the second I walked out of there, turned to his assistant and he went, this is why I don't do general meetings. <laughs> because I had completely wasted about 20 minutes of his time. So you will never see me in an Ed's You would have been so movie. good in The Last Samurai. It's a, it's a shame. Oh, yeah, with my little uh, my sense of humor and a little <laughs> wink. Yeah, oh, that's going to be great. Me and Tom Cruise were so similar. Do you have any, any Pavlovian response when you hear the, the Briscoe County theme song, which still lives in perpetuity, I feel like, on every— For the Olympics? Right, yeah. The sad part is I've had people say, so how did you get the music from the Olympics to be on your show? I'm like, just stop. Stop. <laughs> Give us credit for something. You know, they license this crap all the time. Randy Edelman, who did the score, he's probably very happy I'm about sure. the whole scenario. I just love the fact that nobody knows what it is. They go, God, that's a great theme for the Olympics. <laughs> Man, that's good. Um, so a, c- a couple uh, last questions uh, relating back to Evil Dead. I'm curious, um, and I, I interviewed Sam many times over those years that we were talking about those kind of intermittent years. Um, was there any other extension uh, or different kind of version of the fr- franchise you wanted to see or still would want to see? Is there an Ice Capades uh, Evil Dead show that you you're, have a hankering for, et cetera? Uh, with the television, you've got to tell a lot of stories. So you can do it all in this format. Oh, You're happy. Ash will go to New York City and fight Hercules. Uh, <laughs> you know, there will be a musical in there at some point. Yeah, it's going to happen. The longer you stay on the air, you can't help it. Yeah. You know, Xena had a couple of singing episodes. I forgot that. Is that true? Yeah. And, you know, we got Lucy Lala. She can, she's can. she got pipes. Amazing. Um, then get somebody to sing for me. <laughs> I'll just do a Rex Harrison style. I'll just sort of talk it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, sing talk it. What uh, is a dead night? <laughs> Where is a deadite? <laughs> it could work. I'm working on it right now. So you clearly love New Zealand. Give me the worst uh, location you've ever shot in in your career. What's or, or, or most bizarre one that you've had to spend some time in? Uh, shooting second unit, which is the smaller, usually stunts and special effects unit, for our second film, Crime Wave. Right. Uh, I was given the task to go out with a crew at, at night in the winter above the... Uh, hanging off a cherry picker over the Belle Isle Bridge over the Detroit River. It was 30 below. And we looked down, and there was ice down below. And our camera angle 
was looking past a car, and there wasn't supposed to be any ice. But we had our whole special effects truck with us, and we're like, okay, well, let's try and drop stuff down and break the ice, and it'll float away. Sure. I had these great gloves. I threw a cinder block, and it took one of my gloves with it. <laughs> and it's just one of those moments you look at your hand, and then you're like, I have 30 seconds to get this undercover, or I'm going to lose my digits. <laughs> So I begged that, you know, the special effects guys always had the gear. So I got another Gore-Tex glove, and we, we wound up taking primer cord. Yeah. That's crap that blows, it blows shit up. Like, you put it on top of something, and it blows down. It feels the pressure. Yeah. And it needs something to push against, which is, I don't know, I'm not primer cord. I don't know how they do it. We had no permit whatsoever, but we figured this is Detroit. It's it's in the winter. The cops have all their windows rolled up in their cars. Let let's blow the ice. Let's blow it. So oh man, <laughs> we blew it. A, a freaking iceberg went blo- coming out from beneath the bridge, and about a hundred pigeons that we had used shooting a scene that morning. <laughs> we scared the hell out of them. So it just you know you get in very extreme situations. Yeah. The, the heat of Miami was always. Incredibly oppressive doing burn notice. Sure. You know, but we, we always had guest stars who were locked in trunks. And the best thing Not is, a good gig on oh, you, burn notice. You click the button and you open it up and you try and you pull your guest star out. The soup. Oh, my God. This one guy, he stood. We had to pull him out and he's leaning against the car. And off of his chin, it was a steady drip oh. for the entire sequence. <laughs> But thankfully, he was supposed to be freaking out. So right. we were like, wow, you were you, method. You this guy's good. You're good. He's like, <laughs> acting. There was no acting involved. And, and, then, and last, the thing on Evil Dead I wanted to mention, because I really admired and, and enjoyed uh, what Fede did with the uh, the remake a few years ago. It was back. his approach. It was a totally unique approach because he thought the original Evil Dead was not done for laughs. And he's right. Right. So he's like, let me just do a straight one. Yeah. And that's how he did it. Would, would, would if th- that had been more of a commercial success, would we not have the the TV series made ninety seven million dollars worldwide? So that's that is on the budget you guys did. That's a success. It's a big success. Yeah. So you know, um, I mean, were there alternate? Was there a different plan in terms of integrating no. the universes mm-hmm. or whatever? Mm-hmm. No, we were very against it. We were very against um, combining universes. But now that we're in a TV world, the universe has already exploded. Yeah. So I would come back and say never say never because the TV show may it may foster the desire and the interest and the the market for another movie. Be great. Why not cross them over? Because Jane Levy, I think she's great. She was great in that. And they put her through the ringer. I'm sure she related you related a little bit to what she went through. Um we gave the speech, you know, I told her what's coming. <laughs> we call it the latex moment. What's that? It's where an actor breaks down uncontrollably, and oh. they try and rip the shit off of their face. Oh, yeah. So Jane Levy at one point was, uh, she had to do a sequence where it's raining blood for, you know, weeks. And I think she just wandered off set, and she started taking her clothes off, bumbling to herself. And they had to, like, grab her, throw a blanket around her, take her back, sit her down somewhere quiet. Oh, my God. Have a good cry. <laughs> and then get back to work. You have 10 minutes. Now get back yeah, on you set. you sell yourself. And we're giving you 10 whole minutes to get your jet together. So, That's um, the psychic yeah, and had, physical cost that Evil Dead can do. But I'm not telling stories out of school. It, it, it happened to all of us. We yeah. all 
had the latex point at one point or another. I'm going to I'm going to tear my latex mask off right now cuz we're at the end of our wonderful conversation. Guys, uh, it's dangerous to be careful. <laughs> if they just put it on your face, it's not going to come off that easy. No, it's everywhere. So some actors go to rip it off their face. They're like, "Oh my god, this is really difficult." <laughs> Uh, it's a true pleasure to have you in. I'm such a fan of your work and, and, and of this franchise. I'm so happy it continues on Stars. Everyone check out Ash I'm, I'm happy versus too. Evil Dead. We found a good partner in them, and um, I'm, we're very grateful that the fans have accepted it. Keep supporting it, guys. We need a few more seasons of this one. Let's go five. <laughs> no, let's not get greedy. Five is a nice number. Ratio wants seven. <laughs> Ratio, boss. Fuck this shit, boss. I, I want seven. I will be there for you. For you, boy. You and me, wheelchair, boss. <laughs> Thanks, Bruce. Thank you. That was the one and only Bruce Campbell. Thanks again to our earlier guests on the show, Andy Circus, Matt Reeves, and producer Dylan Clark of War of the Planet of the Apes. Hope you guys enjoyed this week's edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to rate and subscribe to the show on iTunes, spread the word to your friends, and come on back next week. This episode of Happy, Sad, Confused was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at MTV Podcasts. Subscribe to Happy, Sad, Confused and other MTV shows on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.